join me in Matthew 21, and I think by looking there you're going to find just how much more lovely the name of Christ is, perhaps more than you ever imagined, in Matthew 21. There are vital signs that doctors check when you go to visit them for your checkup or for other needs, everything from blood pressure to temperature and unfortunately weight. They check those things. Uh, There's some vital signs in the Christian life and church life as well. And one of those happens to be the Christians and the church's relationship with missions. The healthy Christian and the healthy church have a heart and they aspire to have a heart that is as vigorous and intense about missions as God himself. We, We never quite reach that, but we sure regret that and we want to. We cannot be right with God and wrong with missions any more than we can be right with God and wrong with Jesus. Uh, You can be saved, but I'm talking about the Christian and their sanctification and how they walk with God. I will tell you that turning your eyes and vision and thoughts upward and outward is a whole lot better for your soul than turning them inward. If you think often about, occasionally that's necessary in your quiet time, prayer time, Take a moment to do that, but hurry and get them upward and outward as quickly as you can. I'll just tell you, you turn them inward too long, you're not going to like what you see, and you never will. You're not completely redeemed and sanctified. You've got a ways to go. There's always something there. The need for Christian growth and discipleship is never ending for the rest of your life. And so that's why we've got to be very careful not to have an imbalance of discipleship versus evangelism. We don't have that. I, I almost laughed out loud when I heard a chapel speaker a few years ago say, Southern Baptists have done a great job with evangelism. What we failed on is discipleship. And I thought, who are you kidding? We may have failed at discipleship, but we have done a worse job on evangelism. 95% of our resources, time, budgets, and schedules go to internal ministries uh, nationwide. Now, our budget is um, uh, a bit more balanced. Uh, and focuses more on the world than that 95%. But it, it's, good, it's good therapy to get your heart turned upward and your eyes upward at Jesus and out to the world. You think about how lovely and wonderful He is, and the Father, when you're in Christ, thinks the same of you that He thinks of His Son. And then you look how needy the world is. That'll fix a lot of what's in you. It's not to justify neglecting uh, or pretending like you are... Um, uh, that you're um, uh, not uh, struggling if you are. And I don't mean to say that. But uh, I do mean to say that a lot of stuff can be fixed by praise and service. And I think that this is going to help us here. Missions would solve an awful lot. Uh, the mission of uh, reaching people for Christ would solve an awful lot of what is wrong with the world. Now, in Matthew 21, uh, the Gospel of Matthew takes a critical turn. Up to this point, Jesus has been avoiding confrontation with the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, and uh, some of the others. But here, he engages it. And he engages it especially with the religious leaders, and he does so uh, for the rest of his life in Matthew. So Jesus was willing to confront those who opposed his mission. He was willing to do so in in, in rather dramatic, uh, and in some cases painful terms. Uh, That Uh, He's got a right to do that. After all, he is the king. Now, we need to keep this in mind as we look towards some dates. This coming Sunday, 
Hope you're praying for your invite your one and that you've invited somebody. And if you've invited one, go invite, an, invite another. That'd be marvelous. Then April the 9th, uh, Ricky Shillette will be with us. That Saturday, he will do an adult-only presentation too. Uh, one about uh, males, one about females on the issue of transgenderism. This is not open to anyone but adults, especially parents. And uh, then Sunday morning, he will preach uh, a message that needs to be attended only by uh, sixth grade and above. All of those under will be in children's worship that day or extended session. Steve Foster is going to come uh, April 23rd, and he will uh, lead us in our harvest time. So soon, get your heart wrapped around lost people if you're not there yet. May 1st, we've got mandatory mission trip training after church on that Sunday. And if you need child care, you'll need to let us know, and we'll communicate more about that later. But the first subject in Matthew 21 is Lord of Missions. The Lord of Missions, in chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Jesus here tells his disciples to go into, uh, to go into the town, and to, uh, there they will find a colt that is tied up. And if anyone asks you, what do you need for it? In verse 3, say, the Lord has need of them. And uh, immediately he will send it. And they found it just as he said. And this little incident here was foretold by the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah in verse number 5. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foil of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought it to him. And when they did, in verse 9, the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he came into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. Uh, he is the Lord of circumstance. Jesus knew that the Father had arranged for this, uh, for this uh, foil to be in uh, the city, in the town, available for him, this fulfilled prophecy. And so we've got to be very sensitive to circumstances circumstances can oftentimes replay biblical events that advance the mission of Christ. I know one circumstance arose in my life a number of years ago when I first laid eyes on my future wife. I thought, well, there is my Queen Sheba. And I was very sensitive to that because the year before I dated Jezebel. The Bible comes <laughs> alive often, many times. And trust me, fellas, look out. She's got a lot of sisters, too. So, Lord of Circumstance, and Ahab's got lots of brothers, just to be an equal abuser, okay? So, Lord of Circumstance, then he's Lord of the Kingdom. Uh, verses 8 through 11, Jesus uh, was designated by his Father as Lord of the Kingdom and head of his state. And as a preview, he came into Jerusalem, but he came on a donkey. Now, when he returns again in his second coming, he come on a stallion. He come on a donkey, a symbol of peace, at least in that day. Uh, he came on a donkey, a symbol of peace in that day because he wanted reconciliation. When he comes again in his second coming, he'll come on a stallion because reconciliation is no longer a possibility. He'll be done with it, and he will come as victor. And when he came in, he came into the Christ, declaring him the one approved of God, the son of David, the king of Israel. And so those on mission for Christ must operate, uh, operate with the mindset that Jesus Christ is the rightful claimant to the throne of the world, and he has a right to enter all cultures 
every one of them, to the most primitive and simple, to the most erudite and sophisticated, and say to every breathing human being, repent and believe. He has the right to do that. And so anywhere you are, it is appropriate to declare the king's name. They're on his property. Then he's Lord of the temple. Look at verses 12 through 17. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Uh, pilgrims would come to Jerusalem from around the world. Uh, they, uh, their traveling circumstances were such they couldn't bring their own sacrifices to Passover, so they waited till they got to Jerusalem and uh, sacrifices had been raised during the year uh, to sell there in Jerusalem. And they ended up setting up shop in the temple in the court of the Gentiles, so the Gentiles couldn't get in. And uh, the temple was the place where God would meet with all those who trusted him. And so they're hindering the Gentiles and their access to God, where he would meet with Jews and Gentiles alike. And then they were selling defective sacrifices for scandalous prices. And Jesus saw a compromise integrity, a hindrance to the presence of God, and a hindrance of the mission. And Jesus took aggressive and decisive action in the text. He drove them all out, and then he accused them in verse 13 of being a den of thieves. And that's something to call religious leaders in the church building. A den of thieves. Uh, and then, look at the result in verse 14. Then the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The first thing that happens when you take a stand for integrity and the mission of Christ is that you end up attracting people who otherwise could not come. The lame and the blind were prohibited from coming into the temple because of their physical defection. But when Jesus showed up, they could get close to God. And that's the way it is in this day. But look at what happens next. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple. Whenever a church and a people get serious about integrity and the mission, the children always benefit. There's something that stirs in them, and God does a work in their life. And then they were saying, Hosanna to the son of David, and so the religious leaders were indignant. That's the third thing. There's someone in the religious crowd that's going to get upset with it. One of the hard lessons I had to learn when I was younger is that you cannot, uh, you cannot always keep people from leaving churches. You can't. What you can do is that you can influence who leaves and who stays. And I had to teach young ministers this, a hard lesson that I learned. Um, if, a, if a leadership body tolerates a compromise in integrity or resistance to the mission, the godly will get frustrated with you. The heavyweights, the racehorses, the plow horses, the uh, workhorses, they'll get frustrated with you and they won't stay. They'll leave. You'll run them off and then, because you're scared and you're frightened and you won't take a stand, so you run off the godly people and guess who you're left with? Jezebel and Ahab. But if you'll take a stand, and that means you have to be brittle, that means you have to be ugly, but you take a stand for integrity, and you take a stand for the mission, you will encourage the godly. You'll encourage those with integrity, and you will create an atmosphere where the ungodly cannot abide and tolerate. I, I learned this in my pastorate in Alabama. Uh, they had had a church secretary there, 
Let me just put it this way. I'm convinced that 25%, and this does not apply to our ladies. These ladies are wonderful. But I am convinced that 25% of Baptist churches intentionally go out in the county somewhere and find the meanest woman on earth to be church secretary. They do. Oh, my goodness, the nightmares. And this church had done that, and they'd put up with her for 25 years. They were too nice. Well, she got to saying some ugly things about me. Now, I made, I think I made a mistake. The search committee said, we've had problems with her in the past, and, and if you want us to get rid of her, we will. And I said, no, let me, let me try to turn her. That was my, I, I think I was arrogant and too confident. And it, it rocked along for about three years, and she, she was lazy. Uh, she didn't do a good job, and, um, and all. Then it got, after I led them to celebrate her 25th anniversary uh, and gave one-sixth of the love offering, uh, then she turned on me, and um, uh, she uh, said some ugly things about me to a man I was witnessing to in the community, and it upset him. Uh, he was very fond of me, and I was very fond of him. I was trying to win him, and he went to the one deacon on our deacon body who was the most intensely bothered by her, and then he came and told me and told the chairman of the personnel committee and told the chairman of deacons. Well, that was it. Gone. You would not believe what happened afterwards. There were four generations of her family in our church. And not one of them left but her and her husband. I discovered they didn't like her either. (laughs) And then I started getting phone calls from members. And they began to celebrate. And you know what happened to me that day? I discovered she had afflicted them and been so ugly to them for 25 years. Someone drew an obvious line. I probably should have drawn earlier. And I became their pastor. That's what happened. I was looking out for them. Well, I got to tell you, I was scared to death. I I wasn't, you know, I knew this particular lesson I'm trying to teach. And I I wasn't courageous. I was scared of keeping the wrong people. And I was afraid of losing the right ones. Um, I want to say to you, this thing about integrity in the mission is really serious to God. It's very serious. And so he takes a stand. Now, look, I'm not looking at running anybody off. Don't get that idea, okay? But uh, God is very, very serious about integrity and the mission. So the Lord of missions, then the agent of missions, verses 18 to 22. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Now this is an acted parable that Jesus applies in the next verses. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, well, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? Then Jesus answered. Now, have you ever noticed about all the answers Jesus gives in the Scripture? They don't quite seem to actually answer the question. Not one time. Yeah, it's another question, or it's something that seems to be esoteric to the original issue. Well, that's probably the case. I think Jesus is a lot like my wife. I'll ask my wife a question. Oh, well, you're going to come off looking good with this one. Hey, but listen, I've talked about Jezebel and Janice. I'm on a roll here, okay? So listen. (laughs) 
I'll, I'll ask a question, and she'll tell me the answer she, that she thinks I need to know. And you know what? She's really right. She's a whole lot more like Jesus than I am. I just don't, I don't want a lot of words. Just tell me yes or no. But this is kind of what Jesus does. He elaborates, and he actually gives an answer that is more relevant and more helpful than what's actually there. Like you, darling. That's what he does. Okay, good. Want to make that clear? So here's what he says. Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but you'll also say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will be done. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Um, Israel was represented by a fig tree. And Jesus comes to this fig tree, the symbol of Israel, and finds there's no figs on it, and he curses it. And this is what he would do about 40 years later, to the nation of Israel. Israel was expected to be fruitful in the mission of God, and, and it was not. It was not. So Jesus shut her down. And uh, actually, the Romans came in and just absolutely wiped out Jerusalem and the temple, and they haven't recovered from that. Now, I think the temple's going to be rebuilt. There are warehouses that are full of the materials. There's a red heifer being grown in Texas. Uh, but you have to slaughter the red heifer and uh, sanctify the altar with the blood of a red heifer. Extremely rare. And they got a herd of them somewhere in central Texas, probably other places as well. But um, I think all that's going to, uh, going to um, happen. But at this point, Israel is looking at becoming like what you read at the end of verse 9. The fig tree withered away, and Israel has done essentially the same thing. It is no longer the bearer of the mission of God in the world. Jesus uh, goes on to explain how uh, the disciples then can avoid being uh, fruitless. Uh, and he answers that in verses 20 through 22. But, what, but before we uh, cover that, I uh, need to say, it is a myth that all God expects of us is to be faithful. He does expect that. And he doesn't expect less. He expects us to be fruitful. If you're not fruitful at getting people to Jesus, find out why and make the necessary changes and keep struggling with it and pressing and reshaping yourself so that you can become effective and bring people to Christ and influence them to the Lord and be fruitful in that area. Jesus said one thing, and this is not all there is to it, but one thing that helps happens to be believing prayer. So he gives a nurturing uh, exhortation. The remedy to this fruitless situation is believing prayer. Prayer. And so prayer has got to be a significant part and really a beginning, middle, and end part of anyone's mission strategy. The third thing is, is the message of uh, missions. Now, the setting here uh, from uh, the end of chapter 21 happens to be the temple during Passover. This is the high time of the religious leaders. And they gather Israel, or much of Israel, there in the temple precincts. And while there, uh, they engage in their religious practices, and Israel begins to look upon them with more and more favor. This is the highlight. This is the high point of the year. And Jesus steps in the middle and ruins it all for them here in this text. And actually for the rest of his living days, until he's arrested, Jesus does exactly that. Um, through the years, people have asked the question, who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Some have blamed the Romans. Technically, that's the case, and I guess the major part. Uh, the majority opinion uh, with uh, others has been that um, the Jews were responsible. Um, I think they played a lesser role, but they did cajole and 
they did manipulate Pilate for that. Truth be told, Jesus really, I think, is the one that's primarily responsible. He died because he wanted to die. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one, I lay down my life, no one takes it from me. And Jesus had many opportunities to get out of the cross. There were 11 violations in his Jewish trial that evening. He could have exposed that and been released. Pilate said of him at least four times, maybe five, I find no fault in him. That's like our court's declaration. Um, the defendant is not guilty. And so Jesus could have walked away. When offered the opportunity to escape uh, and um, uh, and all, Jesus actually turned and gave them incriminating evidence and they insisted upon his death. And, and so there are plenty of places where Jesus could have gotten out of the cross. And I wonder sometimes if Satan woke up after the Garden of Eden and thought, oh no, what mistake have I made? He started remembering prophecy and saw his doom on the horizon and sought to get him uh, released. So Jesus in many ways arranged his own death as God and Savior of the world. So he arranged his death with answers, and particularly about John's baptism. They came to Jesus and said, by what authority do you cleanse this temple? And Jesus uh, answered them with a question. He said, well, I'll ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Now, they had three possible answers. One answer was, could have been, it was from God. It was from heaven. And then they would have, uh, Jesus would have asked them, well, if it's from heaven, why didn't you follow John? Because obviously they did not. Uh, the second answer they could have given was that it was from men. But Jesus has asked this question in the temple precincts where the crowd is gathered, and John was wildly popular in Jerusalem and among the, the common folk. And had they said that John's baptism was merely for men, the crowd would have erupted, and they would have lost uh, their credibility before them. So that was probably the honest answer from them. That's not the truth, but that's what they thought, that it was for men. The third answer was, oh, I don't know, and that's the answer they gave. Well, Jesus pulled the mask off of that, and he said... He didn't say, oh, you don't know? Well, let me inform you. That's not what he said. Jesus said, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority. See, that's their problem. They won't be truthful and honest with him. They tried to disguise that deception, but Jesus got behind it. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so uh, Jesus ends up frustrating them by refusing to come through with an answer. Now, the question that they asked Jesus in verses 23 through 27 is a significant element of the gospel. It is by what authority Jesus claims to cleanse. It's a question about his lordship. And when they come inquire of him about his lordship, he won't tell them anything. Well, that's probably not what I would have done. I would have answered them. I would have shared the gospel with them. And I think in most cases, that's very wise. But Jesus knew their hearts. And when he found people that were not willing to repent and believe, that were not willing to submit, they might be struggling with it, that's one thing. But when they are hardened and resistant, Jesus didn't give them any more truth. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Let me ask you, if you take some pearls and put them around a pig, what's that hog going to do? She's going to run up to the mirror and just be giddy and excited. 
No. The hog is going to do with it what it does with the slop. It's just going to stomp all over it. The hog is not going to have an appreciation for the jewelry at all. There are some people like that with the gospel. Now, what do dogs do with Bibles? We have the sweetest dog in our family, and I won't bore you with dog illustrations, but she's a beautiful, gorgeous dog, great spirit. Almost all of us in our family like him. But um, wonderful, wonderful dog. Beautiful, beautiful dog. But her next birthday, she's not getting a Bible. She may get an extra cup of dried dog food, but she's not getting a Bible. She's not getting a Bible. Why? Well, she's a lovely dog, but she would not appreciate the Bible. Hogs don't appreciate jewels. Puppies don't appreciate Bibles. Well, there are some people that way. And Jesus says when you run into someone and you discover they have no appreciation for the things of God, they do not appreciate, uh, they're resistant, they, they treat holy things like dogs, jewels like pigs would, then you, you step back. Lest, Matthew 7, 6, they turn and tear you to pieces. And, and I, I would discourage you then. If you have been trying to work on some people for years and years and years, for decades, uh, don't quite give up on them. Keep them on your prayer list. But move on. Go find somebody who's humble. Uh, if, if you continue to share with them when they're not open and willing to embrace the Lord, what you do is that you, you end up rubbing against their heart and it builds a callus. And it, it may actually be counterproductive. Go find somebody who's willing. Now, my problem with most evangelism training is that most evangelism training assumes that you're going to run into someone hostile that's resistant, and it trains you for that person. I don't think that's biblical. So I don't organize my thing. And this is why some of the things I say about evangelism confuse some people. I don't organize my evangelism or training around arrogant people. I, I don't do that. I organize it assuming we'll run into humble people who will embrace the gospel. And that if we run into an arrogant person, we'll move on until we find somebody who's humble. That's what we do. Now, my concern in our current culture, and I'm hearing this from other pastors, is that the window is closing. And that the number of humble people in the southern United States is on the decrease. So I got a lot of things to say about that, but I got to move on. Uh, Jesus arranged his death then around his answers about John's baptism, which addressed his authority. Then Jesus arranged his death with teaching about Israel's leaders. Verses 28 through 46 contain two parables. One is about the father and his sons. A father came to his two sons and said uh, to one, uh, I want you to go work in the vineyard. He said, I will, but did not. The other son said, I won't, but then regretted it, repented, and did. And Jesus then asked the question, which one of these two did the will of his father? And they answered in verse 31, the first. And then Jesus applies it in verse 31. Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. So there were people that were very unlikely to repent and trust him who did. Now they had spent at first their life in rebellion against God, tax collectors and harlots, people that would abuse the Jews and others that would sell their bodies. They started off wrong, but then they turned. 
The religious leaders spoke all the right religious words, but they never, ever implemented it. They did not become obedient. God expects us to be obedient to his mission. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Then there's a parable about the landowner and his workers from verse 33 to 46. Jesus told the story of a landowner who uh, constructed a vineyard and set some workers over it. And then at harvest time, he sent some servants to collect. And they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. I don't know why, but in Jesus' story, uh, the owner, uh, the, the vineyard owner, sends another delegation. And they beat one, kill the other, and stone the other. And then the vine owner thinks, well, listen, I'll send my son. They'll have respect for him. And he sends him, and they kill him thinking they will get the inheritance. Now, I don't know that way of thinking. I don't understand that. How can you kill a man's son and expect to get the boy's inheritance? I, maybe the vineyard was the inheritance. I, I don't know. But it shows you the bizarre thinking of some people. And I think Jesus has intentionally uh, put that together in his uh, parable. So here's what Jesus does. In verse 40, he asks the question. Actually, he begins with a question uh, uh, in the parable in verse number 28. Now he ends with the question, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And these guys get it right. Now he's talking about Israel. He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit of their seasons. That's true, and that's what happened to Israel in AD 70 when the Romans attacked it, and it's never recovered. Jesus applies this. Now, he changes images from the vineyard to a cornerstone. Now, there was an ancient legend that uh, circulated among the Jews that when Solomon was building the temple, workers sent up from a quarry a cornerstone uh, to be placed at the temple, and the builders didn't like it or didn't realize it was the cornerstone and dumped it over a cliff. They rejected it. Eventually, they discovered their mistake and put it back. And with that in mind, look what we read in verse 42. Have you never read in the Scriptures? Now, that's like saying, have you never read John 3.16? You know, everything here is a barb that God places on them, applies to them. Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Are you familiar with the function of a cornerstone in a building? Do the builders build with cornerstones anymore? I, I, I don't know. But ancient buildings, they did. Um, a lot of times today they're ceremonial. But in ancient days they were necessary. That is, you put a cornerstone at a stone, which is at the corner, and it determines, depending on its size, it determines the height of the building, how much weight it can hold. You know, a smaller stone can bear uh, its load-bearing, and it can bear less weight. A larger stone is load-bearing, and it can bear more weight. And then the dimensions of it are such that it determines the dimensions of the walls that go off of it, and the size, and, and, and all of that. Well, that's what a cornerstone does. The cornerstone is the first stone laid in a stone building, and it is super important. It is definitive for the rest of the building. In the same way, Jesus is saying, I am the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. And the whole kingdom is built around me. I am definitive. I define what it means to be in the kingdom. So the stone which the builders rejected has become the key cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So the Father has sent up out of the quarry of His grace, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. And He defines what we are. 
So in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes, again in the middle of the temple precincts, because they took him for a prophet. So they rejected God's cornerstone. They had the ability to study the Old Testament scriptures, to engage in the religious machinery, to mouth the religious words, and when God appeared in flesh, they rejected him and plotted to kill him. Never underestimate those religious persons' ability when they have compromised integrity and neglected the mission to get it wrong. You've got to know, though, the rest of the Gospel of Matthew gets more difficult to read. It's hard. I do need to end with a warning, though. It's not a happy passage, and so I can't end very happy. I wish I could. wish I had another story about Janice and Jezebel, but um, I don't. If, if we do not engage and seek to reach our community, God will plant someone here who will. Who will. And it will probably be a very unlikely group of people, and they'll probably rent an empty building up along the highway here and have nothing more than a storefront and a budget under $100,000 and less than a few dozen people. Now, I don't doubt your willingness to do that, but if there is anyone here that is not sold out on his integrity and his purity and holiness, there's any person remaining in a crowd like this tonight that's not sold out on this mission, please hurry and get towards it because God will always exalt his chief cornerstone somewhere. He will always leave a people for his name who will bear vigorous heartfelt, leather-lunged, flat-footed, broad-shouldered witness to the exalted Son of God. And Father, we pray that we would not uh, fail at integrity in the mission as Israel did. And thank you for all the advantages that we've got. I bless you, Father, that you've given us and left us with your Word and the power of the Holy Spirit and the insight of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, you've left us with one another. And Lord, in our congregation, you've left us with so many that have a heart for these things. Please unify us even more in your way. And oh God, give us the power and the wisdom to do all we need to do to reach him for Jesus' sake. Everyone from the far east side to the far west side of this region, from the north to the south, and then strengthen us to reach the state, nation, and world for Christ's sake. In his name we pray. Amen.